welcome to Bovine Banter with Penn State Extension Dairy Team. I'm Carly Becker, and I'm a dairy educator in Lancaster County. Today, we have a few people joining us, and we're going to talk about helping farmers implement conservation practices while improving their bottom lines. So now we can go around and have everyone introduce themselves. If you want to start, Matt. Thanks, Carly. Happy to be here. I'm Matt Royer. I am the Associate Director of the Institute for Sustainable Agriculture, Food, and Environmental Science in the Penn State College of Ag Sciences, and I also direct the Institute's Agriculture and Environment Center. I'm Lauren Schaefer. I'm the Agricultural Outreach Specialist with the Penn State Agriculture and Environment Center. Hi, I'm Sarah Zenefon. I am the Watershed Project Coordinator for the Ag and Environment Center. And I'm Ron Kopp, dairy farmer from uh, Southern Dolphin County. We uh, have a 175 cow dairy and I'm in partnership with my nephew, which is a third generation to our farm. Great. Thank you all for joining us today. And now I'll go ahead and start with the questions here. Our first question is, how does the Egg and Environment Center help farmers implement conservation practices and what types of practices are we talking about? Sure, Carly. Uh, I'd be happy to take that question. And thanks for having us here on the podcast. We're, we're happy to talk about our programs and initiatives. The Ag and Environment Center is a center, again, within the Institute of Sustainable Agriculture, Food, and Environmental Science at the college. We really have a role of uh, integrating research, extension, education, and outreach in complex ag environmental problems. And so one of the things that we've really focused on through the years is the issue of land use and land management, how that impacts water quality. So we work a lot with the agricultural industry on thinking about opportunities for implementing different management strategies and conservation practices to improve soil health and water quality. A lot of what we do is really kind of exploring that issue with with partners outside of Penn State. So we work with a variety of different uh, agencies, nonprofit organizations, industry representatives, individual farmers like Ron to kind of explore these issues collectively. A lot of what we're trying to do is navigate some of the, the challenges around agriculture and meeting local water quality requirements and, and larger scale water quality challenges like restoring the Chesapeake Bay. So one of the ways we do that is to focus in partnerships at the watershed level. So uh, kind of local, local watersheds that might be a priority watershed because there's a lot of agriculture in that watershed or a lot of urbanization or both that are impacting water quality. And then working with a multitude of partners locally on a watershed initiative and developing a watershed partnership. We actually oftentimes serve as the facilitator of that watershed partnership and bringing folks like NRCS, Extension, the conservation districts, agricultural consultants that work with with farmers on their nutrient management and crop consulting, conservation organizations, local municipalities as well, kind of all these uh, interested parties together kind of focused in that watershed. A lot of our work has has been focused in the lower Susquehanna region because that is kind of a high priority region for these issues. We do a lot of work in Lancaster County, which of course is still number one dairy producing county in the state. So our, our work is really to try to facilitate partnership like this to increase the level of outreach to farmers in in that region and then get farmers that might be interested in implementing conservation practices but they need to you know navigate the we, we often refer to it as the alphabet soup 
of conservation programs and partners that are out there and really help to translate that and work with the farmer and get the right technical assistance and the funding programs kind of leveraged together to meet the interests and the goals of the farmer in implementing conservation that really works for their operation and bottom line. Um, so I think you, you had also asked about what, what kinds of conservation practices are we talking about? There was a, a conference that we helped to facilitate a couple of years ago, really talking broad scale water quality and agriculture and how can we really address this, these issues with the Chesapeake Bay. And there's, there was a kind of a line that came out of a lot of the stakeholder and farmer input of that conference that really, really has stuck with us. So we kind of use moving forward is it was that if all farmers managed their production land for soil health, managed their manure as a resource and managed stream corridors for ecosystem health, we would be well on our way to achieving uh, Pennsylvania agriculture in balance. That is the balance of sustainable productive agriculture as well as meeting these, these water quality goals. So, you know, that, that vision kind of translates for us into priority conservation practices you know, like nutrient manure management on the farm, ensuring that you have, you know, the right kind of storage and handling capacity for your manure and it's being used back onto the crop fields to build organic matter and, and be used as fertilizer. Cropping practices like no-till and cover crops and all of those things combined really helping to build that soil productivity that also has a very positive impact on water quality. If you have streams on your farms with which the vast majority of dairy farms would, uh, looking at opportunities to you know, fence, fence your cattle out and restore riparian buffers along those, along those streams, pasture lands that are well, well managed. So grazing, kind of grazing management plans that are, that are implemented. These are the kind of, you know, high, high priority practices we're, we're talking about, Carly. Great. Thank you for all of that information. It sounds like you all provide a lot of great resources for farmers throughout Pennsylvania. Moving on to the next question here. What are the benefits of using conservation practices for farmers? And also, what are the community benefits? Yeah, so I'd be happy to speak on this a little. Um, so naturally, you know, conservation practices create better water and air quality, as well as natural beauty and wildlife habitat. But they also create more resilient and productive farms. They can provide like a variety of economic benefits for farmers with large returns on investment. And that includes reduced labor hours savings on feed, lower vet bills due to improved herd health, but they also can improve soil quality, create more value from manure, and improve your forage quality, which means naturally higher crop yields, increased milk production, and improved herd health. So like Matt mentioned, some of the practices that we work with, I can kind of go into specifics about how they can help. So cover crops are associated with improved yields. Precision nutrient management means decreased inputs and feed crop resilience. Conservation tillage saves labor and fuel costs, as well as improving your soil health. Manure storage can save you time and it improves your nutrient management as well, which is associated with increased yield. Stream bank fencing or putting in forest buffers can improve your water quality on your property, as well as create some wildlife habitat and improve your herd health through decreased instances of mastitis, injuries, etc. But overall, kind of demonstrating your environmental stewardship can help the public appreciate agriculture more, especially in this day and age. And many conservation practices do create natural beauty, like I mentioned, on your land and just create a legacy of stewardship overall. And Ron, do you have anything to add to that? I guess what I would follow up with is actually what we do in our farm 
mostly everything that uh, Lauren talked about. So our farm consists of some pretty hilly terrain. We have multiple of BMPs on our farm, which include crop terraces, strip cropping, and it's all no-till with all cover crops uh, applied after uh, the forage harvest in the fall. So we have also have a summer pasture that we put our dry cows and heifers in, which has a stream through it. We installed stream bank fencing years ago on our own without even having a cost share associated with it. So those cattle are put there from basically April to November, and we haul feed to them every day. And it gives them some outdoor exercise and, and makes use of that available land. It's really not crop land. So what we do in our farm has always been trying to find the next practice or what would help to improve our bottom line. Uh, No-till has been probably the biggest game changer that we've had used in our farm because of time savings. Uh, soil quality has definitely improved. Uh, we work with a crop consulting firm who take soil samples and with that then we know which fields need more manure or less manure and that has also helped improve the efficiency of that stored manure which we have on multiple uh, liquid storage areas either under the barn or a lagoon type situation. So we have a little bit of a mix of everything on our farm and it all goes back to improving the bottom line and improving soil health. As far as the community impact of it is uh, we pride ourselves in not only our own owned land, but rented land to farm it like it was our own. And as the public drives by our farm, we're on a pretty busy road here. A lot of daily commuters come by us and they see the beauty of the strips of corn and alfalfa in the summer when they're growing. And then in the fall, when the cover crops come on, it's just like a sea of green. Everything's green, either the alfalfa stubbles or the cover crops growing in the, into the fall and over the winter. So we pride ourselves in keeping our farmstead uh, clean and tidy and fields looking the same way, free of weeds and everything that looks uh, unattractive. So that's kind of what we do. And we evolved into completely no-till probably 20 years ago now because of the time savings factor of it basically handling more acres with less manpower. And, and it has served us well for, for all the reasons that I just mentioned. Yeah, thanks for sharing that experience. And I know personally, whenever I go out on farm visits, I love seeing all the green cover crops coming up now. Instead of seeing a sea of brown fields, I get to see some green popping up here and there. So that's amazing. Next question is, why would or should a farmer look for technical assistance when considering conservation practices? Yeah, Carly, I, I might take a stab at that one. So the simple answer to that question is that it just saves the farmer time and money. In a lot of cases, you know, in Ron's case specifically, he might have been able to do some of that investigation on his own and, and either line up a cost share with uh, various programs or potentially pay out of pocket for certain things such as um, livestock exclusion fencing and that sort of thing. But for other farmers, it might not be so easy to fit it into their timetable. Uh, in some cases, guys are working really hard and we understand that and they may not have time to go investigate different programs and find the best fit for their own needs. So reaching out to somebody like, you know, the staff at the AEC or the local conservation district or NRCS helps that farmer connect with all of the programs that might be available to them in an easier way, because those professionals are going to have a network of folks out there and partners 
who all do different types of work, and they'll be able to connect with those programs a whole lot faster than, than maybe a farmer would on his own. And then the money aspect, obviously some things can be paid for out of pocket and, and it certainly makes sense for farmers to invest in their farms on certain practices that make sense to them. In other cases, it might be pretty limited. You know, if cash flow is tight on the farm and we all know that the dairy prices have not been spectacular the past couple of years, you know, you may, you may really want a waterway or a terrace or a new barnyard, but you may not have the cash flow to support something like that, even with a program that might uh, provide cost share. So in that case, reaching out to a professional, conservation professional, I should say, they might be able to find money for you or find a program that fits your, your style and help you pay for a product that, that you appreciate, but then also uh, benefits the community and surrounding areas. In that same way, you can also leverage funding. So maybe you do have a little bit of cash flow and you'd like to expand your project based on you know, whatever you're working on. And using a program or other professionals to leverage that funding and make it go further is, is definitely a, a wise decision. And then finally, it really does create a good relationship with, with those conservation professionals to have you or as a farmer speaking to them on a reasonably regular basis. So in the future, if you ever have unexpected issues with washouts or gullies or potentially a regulation issue or a complaint or something along those lines, it's great for farmers to have a standing relationship with, with conservation professionals who, who can help them in times of need, as well as in times of, you know, perfectly normal operations. So, Ron, I don't know if you have anything to add to that. Yeah, maybe you speak to technical assistance. Yeah, so just for point of information, I'm actually at the end of my farming career age-wise, but those technical assistance that we receive mostly from NRCS have been a lifelong uh, relationship with basically one technician. We basically grew up together in agriculture and he provided us assistance from originally we put a lot of these cropland terraces in. I did it myself with a moldboard plow. When those things lost their uh, life expectancy, then we got equip money to rebuild them with our earth moving equipment. We got assistance to build our first manure storage from them. Those technical assistance from those kind of providers have been invaluable to us. Some of them came with cost share, some of them didn't. I think in, in the Penn State survey that Matt helped uh, conduct several years ago, some of them things were uh, brought to, to light in that survey that were not technical assistance financially, but maybe we had the engineering assistance from you know, our CS uh, technicians. So we've had a lifelong experience and a good experience with working with them people. Sometimes they would come out on the farm, we lay out new best manager practices, and then we'd say, well, it doesn't quite look like that might fit our operation. And we'd talk it over and come to a resolution that, was, that, that would uh, be agreeable to both of us. So the last round of funding we had was equipped funding again, which we had finished a heavy use area that summer pasture I talked about before and some barnyard improvements at another farm. So we have made use of those people throughout my farming career and they were a valuable resource that really is pretty much painless as far as doing the actual thing. It's, it goes back to the finances today, you know, going to someone and say, well, we can only give you 50% or 80%, but the farmer's always saying, well, can you fund the whole thing? And I'm, I'm on board. And, and that's not always the reality of it. So we have basically have been the recipient of those kind of relationships that really benefit our bottom line. It's so important for farmers to know that they have resources out there, that they don't have to do everything on their own. <laughs> Moving on. Yeah. So a lot of the times when you go out on farm visits, 
And you're talking about those best management practices that could be implemented. Farmers may ask something like, how is this going to pay off? Or what are the economic benefits of this practice? So what would you say to a farmer who asks something like this? I'll take that uh, question too, if you don't mind. So I would say a lot of these practices do pay off, you know, in the end, they, they do pay for the farmer in different varying ways. And sometimes it's not always immediate. Uh, some of the BMPs certainly are quicker returns on your investment. You know, something like new barnyard storage for manure might pay off within the year because you can use it right away and and you see the storage immediately after construction's finished. On the other hand, some BMPs are hard to gauge, right? Something like cover crops and no-till might be hard for, for a farmer to kind of wrap their heads around, you know, what is the economic benefit of that sort of BMP? And I would just kind of reference back to somebody such as Steve Groff, as folks in Lancaster know, he's a pretty prominent farmer who, who does a lot on cover crops and, and training other farmers to to start these sorts of things. He always says they're excellent tools, these BMPs, but they really rely on good management for them to succeed and pay off in the end. So while cover crops may be a great tool in the vast array of tools that a farmer might be able to use, if they're not used properly or thought of as potentially like a cash crop or used like a cash crop in the way that you manage it, they may not pay off as well as they could, right? So there's a lot of potential for all of these BMPs to improve the bottom line, to create herd health, to protect your soils, to keep nutrients in the ground longer, even to fix nitrogen through the winter. All these things can amount to cost savings and increased yields, but you do have to manage it properly in most cases. So, so I would just say, yes, they can pay. It, is, it does depend on the effort of the farmer at that point, whether that management is going to be committed to. Ron, you probably know exactly what we're talking about here as far as management. Yeah, so so the two biggest things are the cover crops and the no-till. As we transitioned to no-till 15, 20 years ago, it took several years, maybe maybe up to four or five years, till you really start seeing the soil quality, soil health improvements, the less uh, actioning, rutting in the, I mean, we had some really low-lying land here that we'd get ruts in at every harvest time. And now We've seen with the cover crops on that land, we've seen find a lot less action. Cover crops are a pretty easy thing. What we do on our farm is we just save what we're harvesting in our rotation. If it's barley or wheat, we just save that, put it in a, in a bin for next fall for harvest. And then we just go out there. We have no-till drill and apply that to as many acres as we can. I think last year I had 350 acres covered. Some of that will be used for spring forage for go back into the dairy feed. Not all of it, but some of it we manage that way. And that also, you know, adds to another feed source that we have feed our dairy cattle. So those two things, like, like Sarah said, are kind of hard to quantify and uh, really see the difference, but it takes time. It's not like immediate. Now I've said that you know, just because you own a no-till plant or a no-till drill doesn't mean you're no-till farming. Farming no-till is more of a whole practice, not just the equipment. And uh, it does take time to get this all set up. And we do some custom farming here in the area, some really heavy soils. And we saw as those farmers transitioned to no-till, we saw huge improvements on the land when it comes to harvest time. I'm talking about silage harvest now that we don't have near the much uh, dragging mud out in the road and, and rutting the fields up. So it is a, a huge improvement, but it's not immediate like 
if you're building manure storage, you know, when that's filled up the first time, then you can take advantage of that. So we have all those different BMPs on the farm that have over the years have added more different values, I guess, to, to our operation. But I don't think there was anything that we ever did that was not any kind of a benefit to, to overall farming operation. Yeah, great. Those are some really good insights. To finish up here, as far as conservation goes, what do you all see as the biggest opportunity for farmers in the next decade? Carly, I, I can take a shot at some thoughts there. Um, well, one thing I would say is uh, in the near future and, and even into the next decade, I think that meeting water quality goals are going to continue to be a priority in agriculture and have potential to drive a lot of these conservation initiatives. So uh, talking about water quality goals related to our, our local streams, but also, you know, the larger rivers and water bodies that they feed. The Chesapeake Bay, although it's not certainly a watershed that the entire state is part of, is a a good swath of the central part of the state, the Susquehanna River drainage and the Potomac drainage in the in the south central part of the state, you know, are all major tributaries to the Chesapeake Bay. And so those um, those water quality initiatives are really being driven by federal Clean Water Act goals. And so there are some timelines there and some goals for nutrient and sediment reductions that are going to just continue to be an issue in Pennsylvania and the other Bay states. So that's, that's really in a lot of ways an opportunity. And, and what's being, what's being done at this point is to look at the particular areas of the Bay watershed in terms of priorities. The Bay watershed's been in Pennsylvania has kind of been segmented out into counties to look at where are the counties that have uh, kind of the largest loading contribution and then uh, work at a very local level in developing a countywide action plan to address the, the needed reductions. So that's that's kind of happening, starting with the highest priority counties, which are on the, kind of the southern tier of the state there, Lancaster, York, Adams, and Franklin County all have developed their plans in the last couple of years, and now they're moving into implementing those plans. And so what that means for agriculture and for, for the dairy industry is really in a lot of respects, opportunity, because the types of funding programs we've been discussing on this podcast and technical uh, service providers uh, there to help implement those programs, they're going to be prioritized through these county action plans and dollars will be available to farmers to take advantage of. The planning process has now moved into kind of the, the, the second tier of counties, which includes Lebanon, Cumberland, Center County, and uh, Bradford County. They're just wrapping up their plans, and you know that, that'll always be also be another area for kind of priority for implementation. And then we'll move into the rest of the, the rest of the bay counties and, and opportunities for implementation funding. So that is certainly something to, to, to keep an eye on is uh, opportunities for, for funding to implement the kind of priority practices that we're, we're talking about. Another thing that is probably worth keeping an eye on are just kind of emerging market-driven demand for food produced sustainably. And that would include milk production and the, and the products coming out of the dairy industry when, and having a definition of sustainability, including soil and water conservation as, as part of that. So whether it's opportunities to work uh, within the supply chain and 
larger corporate sustainability goals with retailers looking for goods that can meet these kind of sustainability requirements, opportunities to, to work within milk co-ops that might be part of these kind of supply chain sustainability goals. There's an interesting model out of the Turkey Hill processor that makes ice cream at this point primarily. The Turkey Hill Clean Water Partnership is a partnership between Turkey Hill Dairy Milk Supplying Co-op, which is Maryland, Virginia, milk producers, and the Alliance for the Chesapeake Bay. And it's really to work with the farmers that are supplying milk to Turkey Hill to ensure that they have their baseline conservation plans and they're, you know, they're getting the kind of assistance that we're talking about in terms of implementing conservation practices on the farms. So that those kind of trends are worth keeping an eye on. I think also there's there's an opportunity for emerging markets and carbon markets related to addressing climate change and reducing greenhouse gases. Those markets are going to potentially, you know, and start and they're, they're already in, in place, but the, the, the larger opportunity to scale these markets up could have opportunities for conservation on dairy farms because some of the practices we've been talking about, no-till cover crops forest riparian buffers, precision grazing, grazing management. These are all practices that rely on the green that Ron was talking about. You can you can see on his farm uh, when you drive at any time of the year. And, the, and that green, that growing vegetation is carbon sequestration technique. And so there's opportunities for farmers to potentially get involved in those markets in the future. The f- last, last point I'll make in this is that I think no matter what, you know, whether this will be a trend in the next decade, I don't know. But I think we, we need to recognize that no matter what, we're going to need more funding. We're going to need more dedicated government funds to help farmers out to implement many of these practices. Some things farmers can definitely implement on their own and transition to that. But others are, you know, they're higher ticket items. We talked about the manure storages and addressing, you know, infrastructure around the barnyard to make sure runoff is captured. These are larger bigger ticket items. They're going to, we can't expect farmers to, to foot the entire bill for those. It, it, it would be very difficult to do that in many instances. So, you know, hopefully what we'll see in the next decade is, you know, that we're as a, as a community, as a policy matter, you know, we are prioritizing investment in agriculture and clean water as, as really important long-term investments in you know, our infrastructure, the infrastructure of our landscape. You know, it's, 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 worth, it's worth prioritizing that investment. You have farmers that are there, they're stewards of that land. Once you invest in it, they're the caretakers and the stewards of that. So it's a good long-term investment. You know it's going to be part of the, part of the landscape and be well-maintained. You know, the outputs of you know, that investment, there's food and the, and the clean water that we all need to to live. So it becomes a really, really important thing. And, you know, my hope for the next decade is we can figure out that, that this is, you know, a high enough priority to invest in it. You know, it's up there with other really important investments that our, our government entities are making. Thanks, Matt. And yeah. um, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah. One of the things I think we found here through this whole shutdown pandemic that consumers have shifted back to buying local Important local small butcher shops, vegetable places. So, I think there's a there's a good niche there that can come out. I mean, we have a, a dairy, a large dairy farm, like 200 cows here in our township, and and they start a side business of just artisan cheeses. I mean, it's not going to be you know their life sustainer financially, but it's just a little niche markets, and I think they just have a little shed out by the side of the road, and people come and self serve themselves there. A lot of people raising beef cattle and selling them, you know 
by the quarter or half. Those kind of opportunities are going to increase, I think, just because the the environment this whole pandemic has has put us in. The other thing is that locally here, I'm working with with Matt, Sarah, and and Lauren on a project here in our local watershed in the Conewago Initiative to make sure or try to identify all the farms in this watershed that need a conservation plan and need help to implement that. And I think if we can get more buy-in locally, we can help improve these tributaries. Conewago drops right into the Susquehanna here in the lower end of Dolphin and Lancaster County. Those kind of opportunities, long run, should help the overall benefit of the community and the water quality. I also serve on our county conservation board. I know that's our main focus all the time is targeting smaller watersheds, trying to do the improvements, basically one farm at a time. And and we find it, you know, when one farmer does it, then it kind of snowballs and someone down the road says, oh, I see what you did there. And I think that's a, that's a good thing. I never thought about investing in that or looking into that. So there's a lot of opportunities out there. I think maybe that this whole COVID pandemic has been a positive thing as far as taking a different look at, uh, at things as, that we didn't do before. So looking forward to some of the improvements that the next generation here in our farm have the opportunity to participate in and keep the farm productive and, and a viable uh, business as it is. It's, I think a lot of people overlook the fact that we farmers are businessmen. We're not just out there tilling in the land and raising milk and growing crops and stuff like that. So a lot of opportunity for those who are looking for it. And I think we just uh, need to help. My role in locally in this here initiative is is like a liaison. You know, I have a lot of contacts in the community where I can go and they know me by face and name and just sit down, talk to them and see if it's just one little thing that we can help improve in their farm that may just snowball into a bigger benefit. Exactly. Yeah. And thank you all so much for joining Bovine Banter today. And I think that all of the information that we talked about is going to be super helpful for farmers who are deciding what to implement into their conservation plan and how that they can actually go about making these changes. Thank you to all of our listeners as well. And don't forget to tune in next Tuesday with our extension veterinarian, Dr. Adrian Berrigan, who will be discussing precision feeding with a Pennsylvania dairy producer. Have a great day.